Well, good morning. In case you're wondering who the stranger is, uh, my name's Ian Hamilton. We live part of the year in Inverness and the other part of the year wherever. Um, We're recovering from an 11-hour jet lag, so if I seem a little sluggish this morning, I hope you will indulge me. We're here to join our hearts and voices in the worship of our God. Our call to worship from the 105th Psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Well, let's do so in the words of the 34th Psalm. In Sing Psalms, we'll sing the first nine verses. At all times, I will bless the Lord. I'll praise him with my voice. Do you stand to sing here? Stand to sing.
Well, I've been a Presbyterian minister for 40 years and I've never heard that tune sung at all. That's a first. Well, let us pray together. Lord, you are great and you are glorious and you are good. You are exalted above the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. You are the everlasting God. With you there is neither beginning of days nor end of life. You have life in yourself. You are the everlasting I am, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We come, Lord, as your people on this your day to join our hearts and voices in your praise. To declare great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. To worship you in the beauty of your holiness. To acknowledge that you alone are God. That there are none beside you. And we ask Lord as we come in Jesus name. That you will look upon us in tender mercy. That you will meet with us in our need today. For you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You are the God who did not spare his own Son, but who delivered him up for us all. You are the God who has promised to be our God in Jesus Christ, never to fail us nor forsake us. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the difficulties and trials and troubles of this life you have pledged in the blood of your son to be with us always to uphold us in our weakness and need to help us in all our times of need we thank you this morning that we have in Jesus Christ a great and a glorious saviour we bless you for his coming into the darkness of this world we bless you that he took our frail flesh to himself in the womb of the Virgin Mary and in that frail flesh Lord Jesus Christ you came and accomplished all righteousness you obeyed the law perfectly in our place and you died the death we could never die bearing the judgment our sin deserved We thank you, our Father, that having paid in full the price of our sin, you raised him to yourself. And now, Lord Jesus, you are enthroned in the glory of heaven at the right hand of your Father. And one day, by faith in you, trusting alone in you and in what you have done for us, we also will be found in that place of glory in the nearer presence of God. We ask you, Lord, to draw near to us in our need today. You know every heart, every sorrow, every struggle, every fear, every sadness. You know every disappointment. You know each of us, Lord, intimately. You formed us in our mother's womb. And we pray that as you see our needs, so you will meet us in our need today. And that you will forgive us, Lord, our many, many sins. 
whether in thought, word or deed. Wash us clean, we pray, our Heavenly Father. Our sins humble us, they shame us, for they are all against you. We understand your servant David when he said against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. We know that the heart of sin is rebellion against you. Sin damages us, it damages others, but the horror of sin is that it is willful rebellion against you, our Maker, and in Jesus Christ, our only Saviour. So Lord, forgive us, we pray. Cleanse us. Revive our drooping faith. Our doubts and fears remove. And kindle in our breasts the flame of never-dying love. So hear us, we pray, our Father. Bless us throughout the time of this service. And we ask it all in the name of your Son, our only hope and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we read in the letter to the Hebrews, in the first chapter, reading down to chapter 2 at verse 4, although we will be reflecting mainly on the first four verses of the opening chapter. This letter to the Hebrews, we don't know for sure who wrote it, but we know almost certainly to whom it was written. It was written to Jewish converts, to Hebrew believers. They had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They had embraced him as the long-promised Messiah, Saviour. But they were beginning to suffer for their faith. Life was becoming hard. Some of them had been disinherited, as we read later in the book. Some had been removed from their homes. The cost of being Christians in a hostile world was beginning to bite. And they were being tempted to turn back, to escape the persecution, to flee the hostility. They were being tempted to turn back from Jesus Christ. And this letter is written to encourage them to go on, to stand firm. And the writer has different ways of encouraging them to do that. And we're going to look at the primary one that we find in the opening verses of the book. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Well, I feel somewhat remote from the children who are here, but I hope that's okay. Well, I discovered this morning that we have a princess in the congregation we do, we have a princess who knows who the princess is I'm serious, I'm not jesting we have a princess well at least her, her name in Hebrew means princess so who do you think that is? you don't know any Hebrew in this congregation? goodness me a reformed congregation and there's no Hebraists well, Sarah that's your name? Yes, that means princess. Names are very interesting. I've got three granddaughters in Inverness. Grace, and that means kindness. Grace is very kind. Amelia means hard worker, and Amelia is a very hard worker. And Charlotte means a free spirit, and Charlotte is very much a free spirit. Uh, Ian, that's my name, Ian means wonderful, magnificent, cannot be bettered. Well, you can take your choice. Names matter. Who 
knows what the name Jesus means? We're going to be thinking about that later in the service. What does the name Jesus mean? Now I'm going to point to someone in a minute if no one tells me. But I'll only point to someone that I know, Jason. So, who can tell me what, J- what J- Jesus means? Jason? Saviour? Half right? Half right? Jehoshua? God is saviour. That's what Jesus' name means. God is saviour. What's the other name that goes with Jesus? 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 Wilma? Christ? Well done. Jesus Christ. And who can tell me what Christ means? Christos. Um, that's the Greek form, uh, the, the, the Hebrew. Uh, Messiah. Messiah. So what does Messiah mean? Uh, or Christ? means the anointed one and in the Old Testament three types or kinds of people were anointed with oil to signify how important they were prophets priests and kings Jesus came to be God's final prophet his perfect priest and his great king and we're going to be thinking about that later in the service this morning but I wanted you younger folk to understand that the name Jesus Christ is a glorious name it tells us everything we need to know about God's son he came to be our saviour to rescue us from what the Bible calls hell, a lost eternity, an eternity without God. He came to take away our sin. He took that sin upon himself. That's what the cross is all about. He came to rescue us. And he came to be God's last word to us. All throughout history, God had spoken through various prophets. People like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Moses. But now God has spoken his last and best word in his son. And that's why we need to know what Jesus has to say to us. Because God's got nothing more to tell us. God has given us his last word, his best word, his final word in his son and Jesus is God's perfect priest what was the purpose of a priest if I knew the congregation well I would be pointing to people what did priests do in the Old Testament well they they made sacrifice for sin but the blood of goats and bulls doesn't take away sin does it blood of a goat can't do anything but it was a picture of something wonderful (coughs) And God's son came into the world and he was called the Lamb of God. And he made a perfect offering for sin. He offered himself in the place of sinners. And Jesus came to be our king. I'm sure some of you know the shorter catechism, question 26. How does Christ execute his office as a king? I won't ask you to recite it. You do catechism in this church? 
nod, yes, no no, you don't do the, you don't do the catechism well, you should start doing it nothing better for teaching you the profound truths of the Bible than the Westminster Shorter Catechism 107 question and answers you could do it in a year no sweat question 26 how does Christ execute his office as a king? well I should leave you to go and find out shouldn't I? if you're really interested but I'll tell you he executes his office as a king by watching over us protecting us caring for us and leading us safely to heaven that's a paraphrase so Jesus Christ names matter there's Sarah, she's a princess but the name of Jesus is the name above all other names there's no other name under heaven given by God by which we must be saved took me a long time to discover that I wasn't raised in a Christian home didn't go to a Christian church didn't possess a Bible but then someone spoke to me one day when I was in my late teens about Jesus the Saviour and that changed everything well let me pray Father we thank you so much that you were willing in your love for us to send your only begotten son into the world so that we might have a saviour and a king to rule over us and a priest to make atonement for sin and a prophet to speak your best and last and final word to us we ask Lord that all of us here not least the children present would come to know this Jesus Christ and to love him who first loved us. And we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to sing the words of the first psalm, I think that is, Psalm 1a, and sing psalms, Blessed is the one who turns away from where the wicked walk.
Well, as we come to the Lord in prayer, we will especially pray for the Church of Jesus Christ in its mission to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, you have sent your church into the darkness of this world to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ to people whose minds and hearts and lives have been sunk in moral and spiritual darkness. And we pray, Lord, for the mission of the church of our Lord Jesus. We pray for those who are seeking to bring the good news of a Saviour to the unreached language groups, the thousands of them scattered throughout the world. We pray, Lord, that you will bless every faithful gospel endeavour. We pray, Lord, for those who have gone, that you will protect them from the evil one, that you will guard them from despondency, and that, Lord, through their labours, living gospel, Christ-honouring congregations will be raised up and planted. Lord, bless this labour, because without you we can do nothing. We can plant, we can water, but you alone give the increase. We pray that we would ever be a missionary-minded church, that we would never simply be content to care for ourselves. That would be shameful beyond words. You so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. And we pray, Lord, for those missionaries that we know and love, men like Adam and his dear wife Becky and their boys. And thank you so much for every remembrance of them. We thank you for our brother as he ministers to dispossessed men and women, as he ministers to people whose lives have been brutalised in refugee camps, who have fled oppression. We thank you, Lord, for his courage, his grace, his humility, his readiness to expend his very life that others might hear of your love in Jesus Christ. Provide for your servants, Lord. Watch over them and continue to use our brother greatly in the extension of your kingdom. We pray for our own nation, Lord, sunk in darkness, moral darkness, spiritual darkness. We live in an age of absurdity. Evil is called good and good is called evil. We live in an Alice in Wonderland world where people seem mentally deranged. And yet, Lord, this is the world in which we live. And we pray that in wrath you remember mercy. That you will not leave our nation to drift aimlessly and helplessly into further darkness and death. We pray that your church, Lord, might be recovered from its weakness and faithlessness. That you would revive your church in the midst of the years. The greatest need of our nation is for a Christian church that's living 
full of integrity and faith and love and passion. We ask you to have mercy on our church in Scotland, the Church of Scotland that has departed so far from you and from your word. But yours is the power to revive us again, Lord. And we pray for every faithful Christian congregation in our land that you would keep us faithful and deliver us from being prideful, thinking that we are something when we are nothing. Lord, forgive us and make us to be more than we are, to be better than we are. We pray for this congregation that you will bless its life as a church of Jesus Christ. We pray for all connected with this congregation that you will go before them and with them, that you will bless them and keep them. We pray, Lord, for those who are going through dark and difficult times that they might know that you're an ever-present help in time of trouble. We pray for the elders of this church that they may be godly, faithful men who will care for the flock, visit the flock. We pray, Lord, that they will be men who are godly examples to the flock of Christ. We pray for those with younger children that they might have the courage and the wisdom and the grace to raise their children in the care and love and discipline of the Lord. We pray our children will grow up, Lord, with clear convictions concerning Jesus Christ, that from their earliest days they would know that he is their saviour and that they belong to him. Help parents, Lord, to be diligent and relentless in teaching their children, loving their children, directing their children in the way of Jesus. Lord, we ask you to be with us as we soon will turn to your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit will open our minds and hearts to its truth. We pray, Lord, that your word will dwell richly within us and establish life, even life eternal, in every single person here today. And we ask it in our Saviour Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, the shortest psalm in the Psalter is 117. We're going to sing that in the Scottish Psalter. We'll sing it through uh, twice. Oh, give ye praise unto the Lord, all nations that be. Psalm 117, and we'll sing it through twice.
Bible with you then please turn with me to the letter to the Hebrews and follow with me congregation should always be careful to scrutinize God's word to make sure that what they're hearing is in harmony with what they're reading the opening three verses of the first chapter Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As I said in the introduction, this is a letter written to Christian believers who were struggling badly. They had come to a living, saving faith in Jesus Christ. They had come to believe that he was the long-promised Messiah, Saviour. And they had embraced him. And they had begun to follow him. But they were discovering that belonging to Jesus was dangerous. They were surrounded with hostility and harm. They had left Judaism to embrace Jesus Christ. But now they were being tempted to go back to that which they had left because of the sufferings that they were experiencing. Some had been disinherited. Some had lost their homes. Some had been put in prison. That might seem very strange to us, but in many parts of the world today, that's, that's the daily reality that many Christians experience. You go to Pakistan or Nigeria, parts of Nigeria, especially the north, Afghanistan, Iran. Simply to be a Christian is to experience relentless hostility, persecution, mental, emotional and often physical and it can become so great that you think I can no longer cope or bear with what I'm experiencing I need to turn back I need to renounce the faith that I had embraced that's the context of this letter to the Hebrews 
And towards the end of the letter in chapter 13, verse 22, the writer describes his letter as a brief word of exhortation. Now the word exhortation is not maybe the best translation. (coughs) Probably better is, I've written this brief word of encouragement. Thirteen chapters he calls a brief letter. He has laboured long to help these Christian believers go on and not turn back. So how does he give them a word of encouragement and exhortation? What does he do? Well, he does a number of things. One of the things he does, and if you know the letter to the Hebrews, you'll understand this. He reminds them of the awful danger of turning back from Jesus. He warns them, and that's why we read the opening verses of chapter 2. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The letter is punctuated in six places with warning passages. It's as if he's saying, let me remind you plainly and clearly of what you will be turning back to. You will be cutting yourself off from the salvation of God. You will be turning back to the prospect of God's judgment. And so he warns them, but that's not the primary weapon that he uses. He's a pastor. And pastors care for their people. And he knows that their great need is to be reminded of the greatness of their Saviour Jesus Christ. Every time you sin and I sin, whether in thought, word or deed, it is because we have become distanced from the glory and greatness of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Every sin you commit, every sin I commit, ultimately has its origin in this. We have been disconnected in our minds and hearts from the wonder of belonging to such a great and glorious Saviour as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he does in these opening verses is to say to them, let me remind you of the Jesus that you're being tempted to turn away from. There are two little phrases in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 3 verse 1. And in chapter 12, verse 3, which capture and encapsulate the great concern of the writer. Chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. He's encouraging them to stop and think. The word consider means give careful attention to, ponder thoughtfully, meditate upon. And the same thing in chapter 12, verse 3, consider him. Consider him. In the previous verse, chapter 12, verse 2, he exhorts them to look away to Jesus. Look away from yourself. 
Look away from your circumstances. Look away from your dangers and difficulties, your trials and your troubles and your sufferings. Look away from them to Jesus. Some of you might remember the old chorus, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what this letter is about. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And what is it that he specifically wants them to turn their eyes to? Well, there are three things in these opening uh, three verses that capture the heart of the burden of this pastor, whoever he was. He wants to remind them that Jesus Christ is God's final word to humanity. That Jesus Christ is God's perfect final priest who makes atonement for sin. And that Jesus Christ is exalted and reigns as the heavenly king at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Jesus Christ, the prophet, the priest and the king. This is one of the great themes at the Reformation in the 16th century, as some of you will probably know. When the Bible was recovered in the life of the church, they discovered that Jesus Christ was glorious beyond anything that they could have imagined. It was a rediscovery of the greatness, the multifacetedness of the glory of the Son of God made flesh for us and for our salvation. And so he begins by saying to them, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's looking back to the whole Old Testament era. How did God reveal his will? How did God make known his, his word? Well, it was through prophets, through a succession of prophets throughout history. Men would stand up and say, thus says the Lord. In some way, God would communicate his will to them for his people and for his world and they would stand up and they would say hear what God the Lord says and the great function of a prophet was not to foretell the future though they occasionally did that but very occasionally the great function of a prophet was to declare the word of the Lord they were not so much foretellers as forth tellers hear what God the Lord has to say but in these last days he says to them he has spoken to us by his son he's drawing a contrast between the old covenant era and the era that began with the incarnation, life, death and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ. If prophets were significant, how much more significant was the coming of the Son of God? And he's saying to them, 
To abandon Jesus is to abandon the Son who is God's last, best and final word to you and to all humanity. Remember how at the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh. Now, now why is Jesus, why is the Son of God called the Word of God? Well, think about it. If I were to stand here for the next however long and just looked at you, you would wonder what was going on in my head. Simply looking at me would not tell you. I've got to verbalize. And Jesus is called the Word of God because he makes known to us the mind and the heart of God. One of the great texts, not just in the Gospel of John, but in the whole Bible, is John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made him known. In Jesus Christ, God has declared himself, revealed himself. There is no unchrist likeness in God. Remember one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, said to him one day, Lord, show us the Father and really we'll be satisfied. And Jesus says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the perfect reflection of the Father. I am the Word of the Father. In me the Father is exegeted, is, is made known, is unpacked. And he's saying to these Hebrew Christians, in Jesus God has finally and fully made himself known. And you want to turn back from this Jesus? Do you know what you're cutting yourself off from? You're cutting yourself off from the very revelation of God. You're cutting yourself off from the, the very word of God. That's why it's so vital for Christians to store up in their minds and hearts the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the psalmist, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, how much more should a, a new covenant believer be storing up the words of Christ? We, we need to know the teaching of our Saviour, that our lives might be shaped and styled by them. There was a day when Christians labored long and hard to memorize the Bible. I think that's becoming a lost art. A few months ago a good friend of mine phoned me and we were chatting and he said to me, have you read the biography of George Lawson? Now George Lawson was a late 18th century Scottish Presbyterian minister. In the latter half of the 18th century, it's the age of the Enlightenment, the age of reason. And the church in Scotland, well, it was described as the age of moderatism. 
evangelical religion was at a low ebb and one of George Lawson's parishioners came to him and said, Dr. Lawson, if they take away our Bibles, what will we do? And George Lawson replied, I think from memory I can write down every word in the Bible, but I'm not sure I'll get the Proverbs in the right order. Now the reason why I remember that story so vividly was because earlier that day I'd been out walking. And as I was walking I said to myself, Ian, how much of Paul's letter to the Romans can you recite? I've preached through Romans uh, twice in the 40 years I've been in the ministry. I've read it hundreds of times. So I, I, I began. Uh, chapter 1 verse 1 Paul an apostle separated unto I was going on and getting to me. and after a time I thought well you did really quite well Ian yeah that's pretty good and then I get this phone call George Lawson he had memorised the whole Bible now that's unusual granted in our Lord Jesus day there were rabbis who had memorised the whole of what we call the Old Testament they could stand up in Hebrew and say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Bereshit They could just go on and on and on and on and on. And remember how when the Lord Jesus was tempted in the, in, in, in the wilderness, three times he repulses Satan by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Once from chapter 8, isn't it? And twice from chapter 6. He didn't have a Bible in his back pocket. He didn't have a smartphone that he could say, right, what, what text can I repulse Satan with? How did he know those texts? You say, well, Ian, that's a no-brainer. He's the son of God. Indeed he is. But he had a true humanity. There wasn't a channel from the deity of Christ into the humanity of Christ that would make him a superman and disqualify him from being our saviour. He needed to have a reasonable soul like unto ourselves. How did he know the scripture so well? Well, the third servant song in Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 49 verse 4, Sorry, Isaiah 50 verse 4. Morning by morning he wakens my ear to hear as one who is taught. The Lord Jesus wasn't excused the educative, maturative process of learning. He had to apply himself. He had to go to the synagogue in Nazareth. Sabbath day by Sabbath day. I'm sure you've read the Magnificat Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 from verse 46 isn't it here's this peasant girl that's what she was probably married around the age of 14 and the Magnificat is just a litany of Psalms quotes from the Psalter how did she know that how did she know that it's quite possible even probable that she was illiterate very few folk could read and write, especially women in those days. How on earth did, did, did she know all those quotations from the Psalms? Because Sabbath day by Sabbath day she sat under the reading of the Word of God 
the lengthy readings, the ministry of the word of God. Clearly she took them to heart. He's saying to these Hebrew Christians, how can you turn back from Jesus, God's final, last and best word? And then secondly, he tells them that Jesus Christ is God's final, best and last priest. In verse, the second half of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's saying to them, how can you think of turning back from the one who has washed you clean by his own blood of all your sin? Nothing will more keep us on track. Nothing will more guard our minds from the siren voices of the culture around us than meditating on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That there the Son of God's love became the object of his wrath so that the objects of his wrath might become the sons and daughters of his love. It's when we become disconnected from Calvary's cross that we begin to drift. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, doesn't mean very much to me, you are heading for a lost and a ruined eternity. The cross is the glory of the Christian religion. It's where God dealt justly and righteously and mercifully with our sin, not in us, but in his Son, Jesus Christ. To be indifferent or to be cool towards the priest who offered himself on the cross is to expose ourselves as people who are in desperate need of the salvation of God in his Son, and so he's, he's holding up Jesus Christ before them and saying, do you see what a great saviour he is? He's God's last, best and final word. He has made atonement for sin. He has washed you clean. We need to be washed clean. There is a city bright, closed at its gates to sin. Nothing that defileth, nothing that defileth can enter in. We need to be washed clean. And that's what Jesus Christ has accomplished by his death on the cross. And through faith in him, our sins are washed away. God remembers them no more. And the writer is saying, how can you turn back from such a saviour as this? And the third thing he reminds them of is that not only is Jesus the final perfect prophet, the final perfect priest, he is the great exalted king. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the king of glory. And one day his kingly glory will be unveiled. And every eye will see him. And tragically many will weep and wail because of him. He is the exalted king. The Bible speaks of him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what's he doing there? 
What's Jesus Christ been doing these past 2,000 years? Has he been sitting uh, on the lap of luxury, just waited on hand and foot? What's he actually been doing? Well, the writer will tell us in chapter 7, verse 25. He ever lives, which means every moment of every day, he ever lives to make intercession for his people. At the right hand of God in his kingly glory, he is pleading our cause, carrying us on his heart into the very presence of the Heavenly Father. He is a king who has subdued his enemies and who one day will reveal his cosmic kingly glory when he comes again in power. Now all of that is simply to say this that if you're struggling this morning in any way if your faith is growing cold if your obedience to Christ is beginning to lessen if your ardour and desire for his glory is less than what it once was your great need is to be reconnected and reacquainted with Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the antidote for every sin that might seem a strange thing to say I don't know what temptations you are facing you don't know what temptations I am facing but I can tell you this whatever the temptation the one thing that will keep you from yielding to temptation is an increasing acquaintedness with the glory of Jesus Christ. It must be 20 years ago when I first heard these words. John Owen, the great English Puritan pastor, wrote, Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our what? Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life. What's, if you are a Christian, some of you may not be, I have no idea. But what do you think is the greatest hindrance in your Christian life? Owen was absolutely right. Our greatest hindrance is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. And our greatest privilege in the Christian life is to know Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Over the 40 years or so that I've been a Christian minister, I've met with people, all backgrounds, all situations. I've discovered this. That no matter what their circumstances may have been, and some of them were in dire, dire circumstances. Some of them were enmeshed in all kinds of dire, dark, sinful things. I discovered this, that their great need was for me to tell them again about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful passage, and I'll close with this. Genesis chapter 39. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, 
abandoned by his family. He's in far off Egypt. Life has just been dark beyond words. But now it's picking up a bit. Potiphar has released him from prison and he's become a servant, a trusted servant. Life's looking up. And then Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to Joseph. And she seeks to seduce Joseph. And you could imagine Joseph is perhaps by this time 10 years away from home, um, abandoned. Uh, It seems that God had left him. Life was just the pits. And now you could almost imagine little voices saying, Joseph, snatch at life while you can. Get a bit of happiness into the misery of your life. And you may remember how Joseph replied to this seductress. How could I do such a thing and sin against God? What was it that kept him from the temptation? His knowledge of who God is. I was interviewed recently for some program. And I was asked, what would you think is the greatest need in the Christian church today? And almost without thinking, I replied, we need to be reacquainted with the Godness of God. We need to rediscover how great and glorious the Lord our God really is. We sometimes sing, maybe you don't sing it here, lost in wonder, love and praise. When were you last lost in wonder, love and praise? Because Jesus Christ was your Saviour. May the Lord remind us afresh today how infinitely glorious He is. Amen. Well, our closing uh, psalm, again in the Scottish Psalter, 146, verses 1 through 6. Praise God, the Lord praise, O my soul, I'll praise God while I live. We'll stand to sing.
congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your heads, open your eyes, and by faith receive the blessing of the triune God. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his